0: Of God's word to Acts chapter three. I'll have to find my sermon, otherwise we'll just have to wing it. And it might end up being a two-hour sermon. Get your full money's worth. All right, turn to uh, Acts chapter 3. As we look at this passage, I want us to think about what has come before so far. So the Holy Spirit was promised by Christ right before he ascended. He says, I'm going. I'm going to send you the Comforter. The Comforter has come. We see Pentecost happen and people begin to speak in other languages, drawing a crowd, a miracle happens, right? There's this regular theme of witnessing and miracles happening and miracles happen. And then what happens? One of the apostles will stand up and begin to explain what just happened and why it happened the way that it did. And so that's what we we see here. They just got done preaching a whole sermon on uh, repentance. And after this repentance is called, the repentance happens, we have a summary statement of what the early church community looked like, or the early Holy Spirit community, Spirit-empowered community looks like. And we have them uh, gathering together. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then we have a little comment here in 43 uh, of chapter 2. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. And what we see in chapter 3 is Luke has grabbed one of those signs, or one of those wonders, one of those miracles, and shown us what it is that was going on. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So before we get started, we should always pray and and lift up uh, the preaching of the word to our Lord. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. Father, we are uh, desperately needy. We know that man does not live on bread alone. Uh, Father, we need your mercy. We need your grace. We need every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, Father, nourish us this morning as we look at this passage. Father, encourage us through this passage. Passage, Comfort us. Father, as we uh, consider the churches around the world that are um, in various states of either persecution or triumph and celebration, Lord, we lift up. Um, the church in China that has to hide, that has to um, have underground churches that are at constant risk of uh, being killed for their beliefs, for being uh, uh, losing their jobs and um, their families, all because of the worship of this king, or they found that it was precious for them to come and worship, Lord, help us to be a people that are clinging to your word like the church in China. Lord, we pray for your your name to be made great, to be made famous throughout the whole world. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So what I would like us to look at is, first of all, the setting of this miracle, the setting of this, this healing. I'm going to go ahead and just go a little bit at a time. I'm not going to give you the whole passage because I think sometimes if we read the whole thing, we lose the tension. So verses one through three is the setting or um, contains the setting. So number verse one, it says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Your translation may say at the ninth hour. So first we want to see Peter and John. These guys are fishing partners, right? They go fishing together. And they had a, a probably had a joint venture in the fishing industry when Jesus came and called them into ministry. And we see them regularly going in this group of, of Peter and John together. Um, and it says they were going up. Geographically, this just makes sense. The temple mount, the temple is a little bit higher than a lot of the other areas in Jerusalem. And so as they leave whatever, whatever house that they're staying at, they go up into the temple. It's also... Um, has a spiritual connotation for a lot of people because they're going up to worship the king, to go up to worship God at the temple. And so they were, geographically, they were heading up to the temple complex. The word that is used here for temple is not the temple itself necessarily, but the whole complex, the whole system of courts, etc. And so geographically plus where they are going, they're going towards the temple. Now, this is a fitting place, I think, to do the first public healing of the church. So we have the first public healing. And every healing that is done is either done by the apostles or someone tightly connected to the apostles for the purpose of spreading this gospel, this word of Jesus Christ. So it's a fitting place because the temple, which is a type, is fading because Jesus, the anti-type, is ascending. Remember last week, we talked a little bit about um, how, how the, uh, the temple was the place, the central place of worship, and over time, as we see Acts move on, it's no longer a safe place to worship, not as safe as it used to be, because they begin to get persecuted. The early Christians are no longer welcome in the synagogues, the, the early Christians are no longer welcome in the temple complex, and what do they do? They start shifting to being in homes. Right? They worship in homes. And so we see this beginning of the end for temple worship here in the book of Acts. The time is three o'clock. It's the time of prayer. Literally, we said the ninth hour. And these two men are following the regular Jewish practice of praying uh, three times a day or three different hours. And then we're introduced to this lame man. Look at verse two with me. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. So first, let's look at the character of this man. This man was lame from birth. Think about the hopelessness of that situation, especially during that time, the early 80s, AD ish. Think about the level of care that they have. They don't have the type of surgeries that we do that can straighten curved limbs. They don't have the type of foot surgeries and foot doctors, right? What can they do with this man except for carrying him from place to place? It's utterly hopeless from birth, right? This was not a a later disease that developed. It was from the very beginning. He was born this way. And so remember one of the earlier questions the disciples, when they were walking with Jesus, when they saw a blind man. What did they ask Jesus? Who sinned? Right? Who was the sinner in this situation? Was it the, his parents or was it him? So much suffering must be a result of sin in his life. And I can I can just imagine the disciples after Jesus said, "No, no one sinned in this regard." The reason he's here is for my glory, because I'm going to heal him. It's for my purposes, right? And so. Sometimes I think we can say, oh, this suffering is a result of my sin or it's a result of someone else's sin. But sometimes I think suffering is a result of sin ultimately, but not maybe um, directly resulted from your sin. And so what we see here is that this man had a physical ailment because God allowed it to happen. And so we have this man who is from a physical perspective in a hopeless situation, completely hopeless situation. And think about this. Not only is he physically disabled, he is spiritually crippled because he's not allowed into the temple. Someone who has a deformity was not permitted entry into the temple complex. So imagine if you were not allowed to come into church because you had a spot on your arm or a deformity in your life. You had to sit outside the doors. You were not permitted to come in. I mean, think about how hopeless you would feel. You are not allowed in God's presence because you have a physical deformity. Not your fault. He didn't ask to be born crippled. In fact, we see that this man was dependent on someone bringing him and placing him there. If you you understand this passage, you recognize that it's a continual action every day. I mean, this was his spot. And you ever see um, folks like homeless folks who have their spot? Right? This is where I beg. This is where I sit. And this man had his spot. He chose this location. And he was completely dependent on his family members. Think about the difficulty of your family, the burden you would be to your family. Every morning you get the kids ready to go to, to, to synagogue or to, to Torah class. You're getting them ready. you got to get your, your brother because he's crippled. you got to throw him in the cart or find a way to get him carried over. To You drop the kids off at the synagogue. You take your kid you know you take your brother drop him off at the temple gate you go home or you go to work right at the at the carpenter shop or wherever you're working right it's just this every day you got to do this it's another person another mouth to feed another dependent he can't really earn a living and so any little bit of money that he can get of course is going to go to the to the family finances to help cover his costs so he's dependent, fully dependent on someone else. And those and the location here is really important. Luke repeats the, the location twice. Uh, here in our first part of the passage and then at the very end of the passage in verse 10. And so what we know about this, this area is that this is called the Gate Beautiful, sometimes nicknamed Beautiful. But it's also uh, Nicanor. It's the gate that's on the main east entrance to the temple precincts and you enter it from the court of the Gentiles and what we know about this this gate is that it was made of Corinthian brass so you have this massive gate made of brass in fact Josephus uh, the Jewish historian Josephus says that this is probably more expensive of a gate than the silver and gold inlaid ones that they um, that they had this brass gate so just imagine the, the the picture that you have is that this entire gate is just covered with Corinthian brass. Um, You have these Corinthian uh, columns as well. And the deformed, the lame man is placed at the gate called beautiful. Kind of ironic, isn't it? A deformed man beside the beautiful gate, right? And this gate is covered in bronze. And so he begins to beg, or he begs, he's been begging for 40 years, give or take. Uh, begs those entering the temple. Now, what better of a place to ask for money than at the very entrance of the temple? I mean, that's where people would go and make their alms and their offerings, and so they're already spiritually minded, hopefully, as they enter into the place of worship, and they would hopefully have something to give to those who are uh, destitute, that have no other option, that they cannot work. Um, it was considered a duty and an act of worship, for the Jews, so the question begins to arise as we get into this scene: What will the new spirit empower? What would they do? Are they going to pass them by? Are they going to take some of the money that was described here as selling of their lands and, and making uh, making, um, making a, a distribution and perce- and giving it to all who had need? What is going to happen here? What will this new community do? What kind of community is this going to be? What will this look like? And so we have verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. So we have the tension at its max, right? The deformed man in a hopeless situation. I mean, utterly hopeless. More hopeless than I think we could even imagine, Right? Not only is he physically dependent, he's unable to enter spiritually. I mean, completely and utterly dependent on just mercy for other people. If you remember Jesus' uh, parable about Lazarus and how he would beg at the rich guy's house and all of this stuff. Right? I mean, just, just a horrible, destitute situation. And so what will happen with this lame man? What is going to happen to him? So before we relieve the tension to see what happens, many of you probably already know and have read ahead. But before we relieve the tension, I think we need to consider the hopeless estate of this lame man. So he's unable to enter the temple because of his condition, and he was stuck begging outside. He survived off of the scraps and the benevolence of those entering into the temple. And we learn more about this lame man as the narrative progresses, but this man was over 40 years old and had been lame from birth. 40 years of being in this situation. Do you think that maybe he had given up hope for anything to change? His circumstances are uh, not going to change. So I just want to think about this some more. I know I'm kind of layering upon upon layer and upon layer of the same thought, but I want us to just really meditate on this he's totally dependent on the community for his care they didn't have social security he didn't get a check you know he didn't have disability he didn't get a check every month he was basically dependent on if someone was going to be extra nice and give him some coins uh, can you imagine if there was a um, a depression at that time and he w- people were unable to give because they couldn't afford to pay for milk so he's physically dependent or disabled. Spiritually, he's unable to enter the temple and worship. He's left outside. And economically, he's unable to earn a living and he's left to beg. I mean, we think physically destitute, spiritually unable, and economically left to beg. So, out of all the people in Jerusalem, this man was in the right place in the, at the right time. And by God's mercy, in order to display his amazing power, through Peter and John, we learn that all the people give glory to God because of what happens to this lame man. So I want to take this opportunity to consider your condition before God. So before you came to know God, before you became a believer, a Christian, what have you, I think we could recognize a few things, some similarities. Number one, none of us can physically save ourselves. Right? We can't. We physically are unable to save ourselves. There's no amount of good works that you can do to be saved. Right, you, you can't buy yourself into heaven. Right, You can't get to heaven on roller skates. I don't know how that applies. It just stuck into my brain, so I thought I would share that with you. Right, because you'll roll on by those pearly gates. All right, I'm sure you've heard that song, right? You can't. There's nothing you can physically do to earn salvation. It doesn't matter if you come to church every single Sunday and you listen so well. In fact, it doesn't matter if you you listen to every word that I say and you take intricate notes. It's not going to save you, right? It doesn't matter how many poor people you give money to. It doesn't matter how many um, uh, charity balls you go to and or how uh, how much of a uh, how much you save the uh, environment. It doesn't, nothing none, none you can do will save you. You are completely dependent on the Lord's mercy. There's not enough good deeds to make up for your sinful condition before God. So you are like this lame man before Christ, completely and utterly hopeless, dependent. And then none of us can spiritually come before God, right? We are left outside due to our hopeless condition. We know that the Lord in his infinite wisdom created all things. But then with the entering of sin through sinful man, we're all infected with this sin. And that's where this man is. This lame man is not on any choice of his own to be lame. It just was. It just is. And that's how we are before God, spiritually left outside, due to our hopeless condition, completely separated from the worship of the one true God, from the source of happiness, as we know who God is. But we see this hopelessness come to hope. And it's by the name of Jesus Christ that we can be saved. We can be made whole, and we are enabled by Christ to worship God. So let's continue our passage as we see this take place. So the, the second point of the sermon is that the risen Lord meets us where we are. Right? The risen Lord meets us where we are. This is so important to grasp in the New Testament. We see this over and over and over again. And we see in the Old Testament when the people of Israel completely and utterly run after other idols, they completely commit adultery on God. What does he do? He says, come, let's reason together, and I will provide a way of atonement. Over and over and over again, God meets us where we are. And we see here in our passage that the Lord meets this lame man where he is. Verse 4, Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. So imagine the scene with me, right? We have this beautiful bronze or brass background this deformed man sitting next to the temple, beautiful. And he's sitting there kind of like, give me some money, please. He's, he probably doesn't even want to look. He's so, he's been so shamed, so embarrassed. Everyone's getting to do things that he's not able to do. They're walking on two feet and they're entering into the temple. Two things that he cannot do. And so he might just have his hand out and just maybe looks away in, in shame or embarrassment and says, alms, alms for the poor. But for some reason, Peter and John decide to address this man. And maybe it's because the Holy Spirit directs them. Maybe because um, they just recognize something's about to happen. But they, they look at him and they tell him, they command him, look at us. Now, that would be probably pretty encouraging if you were a, a lame man, that someone would go out of their way to draw attention to, to him. And they would say, look at us. Verse 5, so he turned to them expecting to get something from them. I mean, think about it. These folks just went out of their way to, to, to engage with me. I'm about to get something big. I'm about to get a big check, right? This might be good. But we see that even though this man is looking for financial relief, Maybe the status quo, maybe a few coins to make it through another season, maybe something that will allow him to contribute to his family or whoever brings him. Well, I think about what might be going through his head. Oh, man, I'll finally be able to buy the bread this you know, tonight for, for dinner and our family will be able to enjoy that I contributed something to my family, right? Maybe just the status quo, something to bring him through just another little bit of the season. And then verse six happens. Verse six. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold. What a letdown. Come on, man. You know I need this. And you made me look at you. But what do I have, he says? But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. So Peter said, I don't have any financial help to give you. Remember, it's just so interesting to me that he mentions silver and gold underneath this bronze overlay of the beautiful gate. Right? It's just, like, just the whole picture is just amazing. And he says, but I have something in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You are restored. Get up and walk. So Peter invokes the name of Jesus, highlighting his title of Christ and then his birth location of Nazareth. By declaring this as an act of Jesus, the Christ, Peter is directing credit fully on Jesus as the source of this miracle. Peter doesn't say, I heal you by my power, right? By the name, by the Holy Spirit in me, I'm going to heal you. No, he says by Jesus's name. He he directs credit where credit uh, is due. And so while Jesus did miracles in his own name, Peter uses Jesus's name to accomplish this miracle. So think about this. When Jesus came and he healed people, he did it in his own name, or he used the Father's name, either one. Um, but Peter, what does Peter do? He doesn't mimic Jesus entirely. He doesn't say, I'm healing you, but he, he, he gives the credit to Christ, to Jesus. And so I, I think we can recognize that the church's power only comes from the name or the authority of Jesus, right? because Jesus is the source. Let's look at verse 7. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. Peter pulls him up to his feet, and his ankles become strong. The lame man is healed. Now, just look at this. I mean, it's immediate. It's not a slow process. It's not like, oh, you're going to have some pain over the next few months, and all these po- these are going to grow back. No, it's an immediate, just like all these miracles. These, are miracle- these miracles are immediate, and they are visible. It's not just like the lengthening of a leg situation. No, I mean, this is, this is overwhelming evidence of God working in the world. There's a, an interesting textual note I'm going to note out with you for just a, a little bit, but Luke, the author, seems to apply his medical knowledge and uses a very technical word uh, for foot rather than his normal term. Right? So there's lots of normal terms for foot, but, but Luke decides to use a very technical Greek term mainly used in, med, uh, in medicine, which kind of helps us recognize that it's probably Luke that was educated medically as well, the physician that Paul talks about later on. And then he uses this term, raised him up. Does that sound familiar to you? If you're used to reading through John and Luke, uh, you would recognize this raised him up is frequently used in Acts to refer to Jesus's resurrection. So over and over again, we see themes of the resurrection coming here. This man is raised up because of the name of Jesus, who himself has been raised up, right? So because of the resurrection, this resurrection is possible. This raising up is possible. This is such a powerful event Unusual events are happening with this new spirit-empowered community. This lame man's life is completely transformed. I want you to notice the connection between Peter's earlier speech and this event. In Acts chapter 2, 21, it says, Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? We see this over and over again. Salvation comes in the name of Jesus. And not because it's a magical incantation. I kind of hesitate to share this because you may think less of me. But my wife and I have been watching this TV show called Supernatural. It is not all that great in the sense of being theologically accurate, so don't watch it. However, these guys, they go around with these rosaries and they bless water and then they throw it on vampires and just all sorts of weird stuff. Right. Um, but they try to use the Lord's name to cast out demons to, right, because Jesus's name is, is powerful, etc. But we see the same pattern throughout history, don't we? People trying to use the name of Jesus to accomplish their own selfish ends. So we see that some people were trying to cast out demons using Jesus' name later in Acts, right? And what do the demons do? They respond by beating up the magicians that tried to use it. Later, we see that Peter explains in Acts 3.16, By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. Peter begins to explain this miraculous event. And we're going to see in the coming weeks But Peter explains that the emphasis on the name reverberates with the temple motif of God's active presence. So this is really, I mean, just a fascinating, maybe not a rabbit trail, but really important to our passage. The name of the Lord is almost connected in the Old Testament or is connected in the Old Testament with God's presence. In 1 Kings 8, eight seventeen, my father David had his heart set on building a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Think about this for a minute. We have this over and over again in the Old Testament, the name of the Lord and the presence of the Lord are connected. And remember how Peter points out that faith in Jesus is the vehicle that connects people to the resurrection life of Jesus. This is how the connection happens. The the lame man will follow the pattern of death to life that we see over and over again in the book of Acts. I mean, I just imagine with me for a minute what the the Jewish people would be thinking, that this is the restoration that they had longed for. This is what we had been hoping for. Remember, the animal sacrifices for the temple had to be perfectly unblemished. There could be no blemish; they could not be used or even set apart for holiness. Yet now, through the name of Jesus, this man is made well, and not by anyone's power, but Jesus's name. Jesus's name really sums up the entire message of the witnesses. Right? They are bringing Jesus's name to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles. So the risen Lord is using His witnesses, Peter and John, to meet the lame man where he was. Right. He met this lame man exactly where he was at this temple gate. Beautiful. But the reality is he doesn't leave us there. Right. The Lord will meet us where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. I I mean, I don't know how many times I've talked with people about the gospel and they will look at me and they will say, well, I just am not good enough for Jesus. I'm like, you're right. You are absolutely right. You are not good enough for the Lord. And they'll say, well, I got to make myself better. I got to make myself. And, I, and over and over again, I, I think of this story of the lame man. And I think, no, no one is good enough. I'm not good enough. You're not good enough. But the Lord meets us where we are. The reality, though, is that he doesn't leave us that way. And that's what we see for our third point, that he doesn't leave us there. He does not leave us where we, he met us. The amazing aspect to this whole scene to me, is where the man goes after this healing. He, he goes somewhere else. He doesn't run home and show his family. right? The, the first place he goes is into the temple to worship. right? He, that's where he goes. He doesn't think, oh man, let me go tell my family about this. Let me, let me put in some resumes at some few job locations so I can be a, a good contributor. Right? He doesn't go and say, let me see how fast I can run. Let me try a marathon real quick. Right? No, nothing else. He goes straight into the temple. Verse 8. It says, so he jumped up and started to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking, weeping, and praising God. We have a whole song about that. So let's dig into the language with me for just a minute. Luke is pointing out something important. He is describing the man's response. Vigorous activity. Man, look at these verbs. If you take it to the second to look at verse 8, we have, he jumped up, started to walk, he entered the temple with them walking, leaping, praising God. I mean, these are all actions. These are active actions, right? So he goes from having to be drugged around by his family to now he is jumping, he's moving, he's, he's walking, he has this vigorous activity, jumped, walked, entered, walking, leaping, praising. The man who is confined to one small spot, maybe he could drag himself. He's now all over the place. Right? So just from this one little verse, we see him moving everywhere. Right, He is so excited. You cannot contain him. He reminds me of one of my two-year-olds, or my two-year-old. Uh, you cannot contain him when he's full of sugar. So look where he goes, though. He goes into the temple. The praising of God mirrors the Pentecost event, doesn't it? Right? So in the same way that when the, the Holy Spirit came down and they began to speak the marvelous works of God, this man now is praising the wonderful works of God. He's declaring it. And we have a clue as to why this is important. So Luke uses this Greek word that's very rare um, in, the, in the New Testament. This word for leaping is very, it's not, it's not used often. It's a rare word. I'm not going to try to pronounce it for you uh, because I'll just butcher it too. But we have it in the Old Testament And it's uh, in Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. So, you know, I'm going to ask you guys to turn there with me to Isaiah 35. So keep your finger here in Acts, but turn over to Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. Because I really think this is an important point that Luke is making about this event. He is pointing to a fulfillment of prophecy. So Isaiah 35, 4 through 6 is is a... a prophecy about this coming Messiah. And verse 4 says, Say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Verse 6, Then the lame will leap. That's the same. Greek word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Man, did you catch that? The lame will leap like a deer. Fascinating use of this messianic passage that connects to this event here in Acts. And then as verses 9 through 10 come along, we're going to see that this event starts a commotion, right? So back in Acts chapter 3, verse 9 through 10, we see a commotion starts, right? Just like in Pentecost, verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple, right? So Luke is repeating the same um, gate name. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. All the people responded to this. So just like the Pentecost event, we have the event where, where which sets up, in the Pentecost event, we have the, the, uh, the event sets up Peter's sermon. And in the same way, we're going to have this event set up Peter's sermon again. So they're all filled with awe and astonishment. Yet even with this astonishment, Peter's sermon is needed to persuade them of the significance. Right, So they see this miracle happen, but they don't know why. The New Testament writers took great pains to connect what was happening to Old Testament prophecy, ensuring that the reader understood that this was not an unexpected thing, but the long expected hope that we have. This is what we've been longing for. right? So when Peter gets up to speak, he says, You've been waiting for this Messiah. Look at what is happening. This is it. Don't miss this. The Messiah that was promised has come, and all these events point as a witness to this. So I think one of the things that that I've been contemplating is that our community, our society, we have needs, don't we? Right? There's a lot of people who have needs, um, and they, they may think that their need is this. And I don't know about you, but sometimes in hard circumstances or even in good circumstances, I think that I have certain needs need to be met, right? And so, in my own limited, finite mind, I think there are needs that I want God to meet. And so, even in my prayers, I'm asking God to change certain things, right? Circumstances. Lord, help me do this, do that, or whatever the need is that I think I need to have. But the reality we see here is that there is something much better, uh, and that is our Savior. There's hope for all of us. Something better than silver and gold. And that's the unworthy become worthy. I don't know about you, but there are some days I don't feel like coming to church. And that's kind of bad for your pastor, right? But I don't feel like I'm worthy to preach the gospel. There are times when I don't feel worthy of of entering into his sanctuary. I don't feel like there's times, even in the morning, some days I open up his word and I'm like, Lord, I'm not even worthy to read the words that you wrote. And it could be any number of things. It could be tiredness. It could be lack of motivation. I could just not feel like worship. And I have to remember that there is something greater, that the Lord makes me worthy. Jesus Christ, by his shed blood, makes me worthy. But there's a call here to the unconverted. If you do not know this Jesus, if you have not called on his name, I I want you to know that it doesn't matter how low you are how sinful or how wicked, maybe even how unmotivated you are. Now is the time to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Now, you may be asking yourself, how do I do that? Well, I think it's the same way that you would um, call on the name of the Lord if you were sinking in quicksand, All right? You need someone to pull you out. What do you say? Help, Lord Jesus, help me. I'm drowning because I'm a sinner. I'm living in a sin-soaked world and I need you. Place your trust on him today. And we, have, as we have learned over the last few weeks, Jesus, fully God, took on human flesh, lived that perfect life, going through the same trials that you and I have gone through. He experienced a brutal death. Three days later, God, the Father, raised him from the dead. And now this Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, the Father, ruling as Lord. When we place our trust in him, we are taking our sin and shame and putting it on his shoulders. And we are taking the righteousness, his perfect righteousness, and it, he puts it on ours. So we are completely made new and can enter God the Father's presence. Think about that for a moment. This picture of the lame man, and, and I'm going to try not to become to allegorize this, but the lame man represents us. We are unworthy to enter into God's presence, yet through the name of Jesus Christ, we are now able. And not only that, we can do it with walking and leaping and praising God. We can sing praises to him about his wonderful works. You know, we're, we're surrounded by a community that has many felt needs, right? How many people do you talk to and they say, if only this would happen, if, if we just had the right political person in office? if I just had a little bit more money, if I just had this or I just had that, they're like the lame man sitting at the gate hoping for a change in circumstance. But we have something better to offer them, don't we? Now, I'm not saying that we don't um, care for felt needs, right? I'm not saying that we just avoid the homeless guy and, and just say, what you need is Jesus, not a bottle of water. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is there's something greater that they need than just their physical needs met. They need the gospel. They need the Lord Jesus Christ. They need a relationship with him. But the ultimate need is the life-changing encounter with the risen Lord. And that's what we see in our passage. The rain man's transformation led him to deep praise and appreciation for what has been done to and for him. Do you see what Christ has done for you? Have you taken a few seconds as I've been preaching to think through this yourself? Because when you came to the Lord, you were not worthy. You were like the lame man. You were unable to save yourself. But because of his great mercy, he raised us to life. Does that not make you want to share his name with others? The people that you go to work with, the people that are around you, does that, that appreciation for what he has done not make you want to be a witness to the temple to march to leap to, to scream out look at what the lord has done for me i hope that encourages you to share what you have with those around you uh, wherever you go whether it be to the barber shop, to um, the store the grocery store don't just meet their felt needs when they talk to you right? don't just give them good worldly advice give them a relationship with christ offer that to them the name of jesus christ Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this amazing miracle that you have performed. Lord, as we see this miracle, of this walking and leaping and praising, that silver and gold that Peter and John not have, but the they, what they had, they gave. Father, help us to be like Peter and John, to give your name to those around us. Lord, help us to push past the felt needs of those around us and give them what they truly need. Lord, we uh, we live in a community that's desperate for help, that are uh, are begging for someone to care for them uh, in deeper and meaningful ways. Lord, we have uh, young people in social media or videos or or any number of distractions, and Lord, their greatest need is not more entertainment, but the risen Christ. Lord, help us to be a church that offers you to those around. Father, we, uh, we ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ, and uh, we beg for your mercy today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.